As a boy growing up in the 1970s, I experienced a compelling educational experiment called Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> I sense I'm speaking to some of my people in that regard, and if you're too young to know what that is, allow me to say that Schoolhouse Rock was essentially a collection of extended animated educational commercials that would air on Saturday mornings between the most popular cartoons. Some of the segments had to do with history. Some had to do with government. But I think the best segments had to do with grammar and language. In fact, my all-time favorite Schoolhouse Rock segment focused on something called interjections. And interjections are essentially exclamations that introduce reactional energy to the normal cadence of our conversations. Grammatically, they're normally accompanied by exclamation points or in an age of texting, perhaps multiple exclamation points. Wow, for example, would be a common exclamation or interjection, as in, wow, I never expected to be receiving a grammar lesson in the Easter sermon. <laughs> and part of what made Part of what made the interjection segment so good was the song, the accompanying song. A song about interjections. And here's the really interesting thing. I haven't seen the segment in decades, but the interjection song, for some reason, continues to resonate in the twisted chambers of my particular cognition. I can't get away from it. And you might think that that's an ex exaggeration, and so allow me to give you a little bit of proof. Interjection, interjection, generally said apart from a sentence by an exclamation point or by comma when the feeling's not as strong. So when you're happy, hooray, or sad, ah, or frightened, eek, or mad, rats, or excited, wow, or glad, hey, an interjection starts a sentence right, interjection and scene. Thank you very much. Yeah, it just feels like there's a load off of my chest to be able to invite you into a portion of the soundtrack of my inner monologue. Thank you for being there for me today. But interjections and exclamation points. Interjections and exclamation points. I suppose that I'm thinking about both today because when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus, which can be described in so many ways, but when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus, we're making reference to what might be described as the most cosmically revolutionary exclamation point in the metaphorical grammar of human history. And would you think with me for just a moment, friends, would you think with me for just a moment about the way in which human history is punctuated? The grammar of human history. Every life, for example, has its share of commas. Those events and circumstances that inspire us to pause, but only slightly. You know, a minor health problem. Everyday accomplishments or setbacks at work. Small achievements small disappointments, those are the commas. 
And then every once in a while, we experience something that inspires a longer pause, unexpected good news or bad news from an old friend. A significant birthday, the purchase of a home, change of jobs. And I'm absolutely convinced that these semicolons prepare the way for authentic periods, events and circumstances that cause us not only to pause, but to transition, maybe to a new sentence, maybe to a new paragraph, maybe to a new chapter. Marriage represents such a period, so does divorce. The birth or the adoption of a child, the diagnosis of cancer, the death of a loved one. That moment when a relationship with God becomes for us life-changingly real. Those are the periods in history's grammar. And then, rarely, rarely, something transpires that can only be described historically as an exclamation point. An exclamation point's impact not only an individual life, but they impact the ontological identity of an entire population. September 11, 2001 comes immediately to mind as one of those painful exclamation points. The pandemic, my goodness, how would we describe it? It's sort of an extended interjection, isn't it? the exclamation point of which we're still in the process of interpreting. You see, exclamations change history. They inspire the reconfiguration of the perspectives with which people approach life, with which people approach the world. And I would suggest to you on this Easter morning that at the heart of Easter, at the heart of Easter is this revolutionary exclamation point that makes sense of the rest of history's grammar. Here's the exclamation point. Mary, Mary Magdalene more specifically, stands outside of the now empty tomb of Jesus, weeping. She's weeping because she is devastated still over the crucifixion of the one she thought, whom she thought would change everything. And now added to that devastation is her heart sickness over what she has interpreted as the indignity of Jesus' body being stolen. She weeps because it is all that she can do. She weeps. All of a sudden, she senses the presence of someone else standing in the garden nearby. Someone she does not recognize, and I think that's an interesting detail of the story. Her eyes are not prepared to recognize who he is. Assuming him to be the gardener, she begins to question him about the circumstances. Excuse me, sir, do you know anything about this? Jesus was so incredibly important to me. Please, if you know anything concerning the whereabouts of his body, please tell me. I would be so grateful. And when this man finally speaks to her, he speaks a personal word. Her name. Mary. And you know as well as I do that there is something wonderfully powerful about hearing someone we love speak our name. It's interesting that when my father was in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease, 
and after he had lost track of who I was in his thinking. Every day, I would long to hear him speak my name. Just one more time. There's something powerful about hearing someone we love speak our name. I think that's why this is such an important detail in the story. It's where the recognition comes about. Jesus speaks her name, Mary, and as soon as that personal word falls upon her heart, her eyes are mystically and supernaturally open to the reality that this man standing in her presence is not the gardener. This man standing in her presence is the one through whom the garden had been made. Jesus, yesterday dead, today somehow alive. Yesterday wrapped up in cloths, lying in a manger. Today standing in her presence, speaking her name. That is the essence of the exclamation point. Now, allow me to pause long enough to acknowledge something. It may be that some of you who have found your way into this worship experience this morning don't fully buy into the resurrection of Jesus. It may be that you are here out of an important family tradition, or it might be that you are here to respect a loved one or out of respect for a loved one. But maybe there are some of you who cannot bring yourself to embrace what in one sense is the cognitively absurd idea of Jesus being raised from death into new life. And if that describes your situation at all, if that's anything like where you are as you sit here today, I do not want you to feel unwelcome in this place. I really don't. Please hear that. I do not want you to feel unwelcome in this place because the truth of the matter is you are among friends. You are among friends, all of whom are struggling to believe in the resurrection. We might be at different places in the struggle, but all of us are standing in the same grammatical mess, if you can permit me to put it that way. We're standing in the same grammatical mess of human history, trying to make sense of what kind of an exclamation point the cross and the resurrection really is. But wherever you are in the mess, the grammatical mess of human history, wherever you place yourself in the faith spectrum, I would like to invite you to travel to whatever portion of your imagination will enable you to consider the possibility and hear that. Consider the possibility that in the resurrection of Jesus, we find an exclamation point so truthful, so powerful, that it never stops mattering. I'm asking you to go to that place in your imagination that helps you to consider the possibility that the resurrection is a truth that never stops mattering. And here's the urgency of that. If the resurrection is truth, then it reveals to us that the Christ to whom we have been invited to surrender our lives is not a dead celebrity, fondly remembered, but rather a living Savior, a living Lord who offers to us not a stagnant religion, but a life-giving and transformational relationship over which sin and death will never hold governance. You see, if the resurrection is truth, 
then it reveals to us an exclamation point that God has placed on this truth that we have a God who has the capacity to transform death into new life, suffering into new hope in a way that enables human hearts to hold strongly the conviction that no experience of death or suffering will ever take us outside of the boundaries of what God can heal and redeem and resurrect. That's good news that my heart needs to hear this morning. That we won't ever experience anything that God can't resurrect. Not mass shootings, not tornadoes, not earthquakes. Not warfare or addiction or hatred or betrayal, not abuse or depression or cancer or grief, not racism or sexism or homophobia or transphobia. These are the things that generate a spirit of death in our world, and there is plenty of it. But the truth of the resurrection, if we embrace it as truth, and I do, the truth of the resurrection is that none of these things will ever prevent, hear this, none of these things will ever prevent a resurrecting God from ushering a lifeless soul or a devastated people back into the rhythms of abundant life. On Palm Sunday in 1994, March, the children's choir at the Goshen United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Alabama sang for that church's Palm Sunday worship service. In the middle of the children's singing, a tornado dropped onto that church, destroying the building and killing 20 people including the pastor's daughter, whose name was Hannah, four years old. As you might imagine, the congregation was devastated. The entire community was devastated. In fact, the stench of death was all that people could smell that year during Holy Week in Piedmont, Alabama. But Easter was coming, and this was the church. And so plans were made. People were notified. And the very next week, early on Easter Sunday morning, the congregation of Goshen United Methodist Church gathered on the front lawn of their now-destroyed church building for an Easter sunrise service. Over 200 people gathered to sing at the top of their lungs, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Amen. And at one point in the service, the pastor of the congregation, Reverend Kelly Clem, who was still in the rawness of grief over the loss of her four-year-old daughter, stood before that congregation, opened her old Bible, and proceeded to read these words. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Because I live, you shall live also. 
And with that, she closed her Bible, looked into the faces of her people, and with tears streaming down her cheeks, screamed out these words with an urgency that she had never brought to them before. Jesus Christ is risen, to which everyone responded. He is risen indeed. And then she said this, we are weeping deeply today, friends. And as I think about her words, I think about how some of you are in a place of weeping right now as you come into this Easter celebration. She said on that Easter Sunday morning, we are weeping deeply today, friends. Do not hold back your tears. They are truth. They are truth. But as truthful as the tears are, she said, they are dripping this morning. They are dripping onto the Easter truth upon which we stand. And that Easter truth is that in Jesus Christ, death is never the end of the story. Not ever. It is not the end of our church's story, she said. It is not the end of the story of the people we've lost. It is not the end of my beautiful daughter's story. Because in Jesus, life is the end of the story. Because, and then she said it again, Jesus Christ is risen. And everybody responded, he is risen indeed. And interestingly, when asked by a television reporter following the benediction why that sunrise service had been so significant, one of the church members put it this way. That service I just experienced put an exclamation point, she said, on everything that I believe about Jesus. And doesn't that sound about right to you, an exclamation point on Easter? Because in essence, that is what the resurrection is. It is a cosmically revolutionary exclamation point in the metaphorical grammar of human history and one that reveals to human hearts over and over and over again that sin and death and tornadoes and tragedies and suffering in Jesus Christ are never the end of the story. And to that, I simply say, with multiple exclamation points, wow.